Thank you. 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 Hello and welcome to Gratitude Sandwich, a little podcast that aims to make a big difference in bringing true stories from regular people around how gratitude maybe surprised them in their life. Today, joining us is my good friend, Karen Jeanette. She is Midwest born and bred and claims her heart is mitten-shaped. Yep, mitten-shaped. Just like her home state of Michigan. Indianapolis has become home since 2009, when upon her husband's retirement, they moved to be near half of their grandchildren. Married 25 years, she had a 30-year teaching career. Wow, 30 years teaching career. Wow. Largely with students learning to succeed despite health or neurological challenges. She has been the stepmother to 10 children, holy guacamole, all of whom are now adults. Today, she finds herself the matriarch of a very large family and feeling a little more like a Hoosier every day. A Hoosier with a mitten-shaped heart. I have the coolest friends. (laughs) Welcome, Karen. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. I I think this is a good exercise in um, just slowing down and thinking about life. Yeah. So even though I have a little story to tell you, it really doesn't have anything to do with the beauty of no, which is what I really spent time dwelling on uh, this last week. But um, the last 10 years of that 30-year teaching career were spent in my car, primarily, always trying to be on time. Uh, I went to hospitals where students were and could not be in the classroom. I went to homes where students were laid up or ill and couldn't be in the classroom for long stretches of time. And then I would go meet their teachers um, in high school. That was six teachers and gather all the information I needed, lessons, whatever, and went and taught. About how many students did you have at a time usually? At a time, I think my largest caseload um, at one time was 10. It's so interesting um, because so, like, if you've never been in this situation where you've had a child in the hospital for a long period of time, you don't really get it. Like, you, especially now with COVID, you know, we're all, you know, studying online and everything, but I didn't know people like you existed, that there was a teacher to go and teach folks. I am thankful that you exist for that because holy wow, would that be hard to keep a child, you know, sort of engaged? And um, what levels of illness and sorts did you? Well, the first student I had had a glioblastoma brain tumor. He was a ninth grader. And um, as a glioblastoma was at that time, a year, he had a year to live. But as a ninth grade boy, he also lived to live and he was going to become an engineer. And so we did Algebra 1. We did the first two or three pages of Algebra 1 every single day that I had him in my life because he didn't remember that he had done it or he, you know, and and he, up until the brain tumor, he'd been a really bright kid, really capable kid. Wow. Um, That's probably one of the hardest stories. Um, And another young man about four years later, five years later, who was very technologically savvy and with the phone company, a representative in our district from the phone company, we were able to start implementing um, conference call polycom stations, the old polycoms. Oh, wow. So each classroom had gotten their own phone number eventually. And when that happened, I was able to put polycoms in some of the high school classrooms 
so kids could participate right from home with the discussion live, um, pre anything Zoom like. Right. <laughs> I, I, now I would have the best, you know, fun. We're just hooking people up to their classrooms and, and monitoring. Mm. But um, yeah, it was it was a very interesting career. I really loved it. Met a lot of wonderful people. Um, the whole it's a whole family kind of thing when you go into someone's home to work with their kid. I mean, it's also the football player who broke his leg and has to be off of it for six weeks. So, you know, it's yeah. a bunch of things, you know, um, young girls that had gotten pregnant and just weren't going to finish the last five months in school. Wow. Because they were what, 14. And so they were finishing their school year at home and I would go and see them three times a week. With wow. their so it was all kinds, all kinds of things. So there was a lot of heart that played into that reason for yeah. what that you said at the beginning of, I didn't want to be late for anyone. I didn't want to be late for anyone. Just um, so they, they built their day around um, when I was coming, a parent had to be at home. Um, and if not a grandparent or a neighbor had to come over or whatever. Um, so the schedule was really important, but the schedule also, um, because I'm a bit of a perfectionist, can make me crazy. So one morning I left. I had a meeting at my office with the special education director and had to pick up a few things and then get on the road because I had probably, you know, my first stop was at nine o'clock. Probably I was coming from the high school, which was across town from where my office was. But Plymouth, Michigan is known for its railroads. And of course, I catch a train. You can't do anything about that. So I tried yeah. to use trains as just got, You mean you got stuck behind a train? You didn't catch a train, like get on no, a train. No, no, no. I, I, we say catch a train. I caught a train. Yeah, you get stopped at the railroad crossing. <laughs> so you're okay. there and you're going, oh, this was not the best time. But you can't control that, you know. Um, as soon as the, the train clears and I pass through and turn the corner, a gravel hauler, one of those big tandem two bucket gravel haulers pulls out in front of me. And it's like, oh, the universe is just making me crazy today. And so I feed into my own craziness about being on time and being a perfectionist about it and all that. And I'm trying to like rush this little car I had at the time. The sunroof is open. It's a gorgeous morning up till the train. I was thinking how lovely today was. <laughs> and But my anxiety is rising and I'm trying to force speed in my life. So uh, I finally realized that we're going to head down the hill, cross over this Metro Parkway area that we had there. And then he was going to have to go up the incline and I would be right behind him, but he's full of gravel. So how close do I want to be? And I suddenly just thought, you know, sit at this light, just take a deep breath. You're going to be a few minutes late. Sit here, breathe in the air, let the gravel hauler get out of your way. So I watched him chug across the intersection, chug up the hill, and at about that moment, I'm staring ahead and four geese or so fly across the sky. One of them's a little too low and catches an electrical wire and immediately bursts into flame. No way. And falls. <laughs> and I'm thinking, flaming goose in my sunroof. So does a flaming goose need to drop in front of your car for you to see that you need to get more rest? There's all kinds of studies that say the quality of your sleep, the quality of your rest, pretty much affect everything that you do, that you are, how you show up in the world. Well, if you would like a great tool to help you to get improved rest, go to my website and download my free Yoga Nidra for Deeper Sleep. 
It's there. It's free. Go get it now. Let's get back to Karen's story. Flaming goose in my (laughs) sunroof. Had I just not slowed down and accepted the fact that it was my turn to sit at the traffic light and wait, I would have had a flaming goose drop into my sunroof. Oh, God. it became, it became kind of a mantra for me every time I start to get anxious and start to get in a hurry and, you know, driving around this town thinking flaming goose, flaming goose. And, you know, it doesn't mean anything to anybody else. But in my mind, it's like, just remember the horrible things that can happen to you when you just don't slow down and savor what you have. You have a gorgeous morning. You have wind coming through the sunroof. You have a beautiful parkway to sit at the light. Just chill. Just chill. Oh my goodness. So had the gravel hauler not been in front of you, that you would have been the recipient of the flaming goose in your car. Maybe, maybe I would have cleared him. I don't know. Because <laughs> I would have been way ahead of the gravel hauler. <laughs> At the end of the day, it's a, a pretty amazing. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter, but it was just startling to watch a goose goose burst into flame and, and drop to the ground. It was like, wow, it really does happen. So that wow. Wow-y. Yeah, all of that started my um, my little mental journey, I guess, into thinking about this podcast <laughs> and what am I grateful for other than learning patience, even though it's um, kind of an uneven growth line. Um, and I thought, you know, the beauty of no. And I told this to a friend and she said, you mean like the beauty of being able to tell others no? I said, no, not that. The beauty of hearing no. When no is the answer you get. There's beauty in that. And um, I uh, started to think that every toddler finds his power when they latch on to the meaning and they latch on to the verbal ability to use those two little letters. And they say no. And they realize I've got the power. And the parents basically groan and they say, oh, my gosh, the baby has learned how to say out loud and knows what it means. No. And so I think from that moment in life, you spend the next 18 years, the parent and the child, navigating and negotiating and arguing over the small little syllable of the English language, which is no. And I'm beginning to wonder if that's not the source of why no is such a negative thing in our life. When you hear no, um, it's our general inclination to be upset. You know, oh gosh, I heard no. Uh, to be depressed, even to be disappointed. Um, and, and we just think it's a bad thing. When you hear no, it's a bad thing. Actually, um, I've looked back in my life and I can see gratitude for that, for those moments in time when no was given to me. Um, and I, I go back to my, the first professional no was um, I had applied for an, for an elementary school principal position. And it went pretty seamlessly. The application was easy to fill out. The, the interview was easy to prepare for. I sat down with people I basically knew. I thought I had a great interview. Um, they thought I had a great interview. And when the answer came back that, no, we didn't pick you, no, um, because you've never taught full time in an elementary school. Um, 
I thought, really? I've taught full-time in middle school. I've taught full-time in high school. And I said, yeah, those are just different beasts. It, it's not the same climate as an elementary school. And, um, would you know, try again. You know, <laughs> thanks for playing try again. So I thought, okay. And I thought, wow, this is probably the first time in college, anything that I tried where I got a professional, no. So I sat back, went back to my seventh grade classroom, seventh, eighth grade classroom, and continued. And pretty soon a middle school opening happened. So I applied again. It was the same process. And I think training, background, experience, education, you know, it all just kind of flowed seamlessly for me. And it was a great interview. And when I got the phone call, they said it was a great interview and you're a strong candidate. But the school districts decided that every middle school is going to have a man-woman administrative team. So either the principal will be a man or a woman and the assistant will be the other. And I said, well, I can't argue with that. And the job I had interviewed for was with a woman principal. So at this moment in time, they decided to kind of change the paradigm. And they said, so again, thanks for playing, but no, not you. Wow. So the gratitude starts with the baseline of, I have just been accruing experience and accruing education and, you know, the ability to be able to do that and have a happy life doing it. I get the two no's, which are the filling, and then the the top layer, the gratitude that had I taken those jobs, either one of them, I would not have felt able to take advantage of the opportunity that followed almost immediately. And um, I know it's it's amazing. Um, I was finishing my specialist and a woman that I had admired. And I I was like a workshop junkie. Whenever Georgia was presenting, I was at a workshop because I loved her message. I loved her style. I always walked away with something new to cogitate on. And so um, Eastern Michigan University to complete the specialist, she approached me and said, I have to, I'm laid up. I can't be on my feet for about six weeks at least, but the semester's starting. Will you teach my class? But I want to coach you on how to be a college professor. And I thought, sure, I can do that. And had I been a new principal, I would not have devoted the time to this. So I meet with Georgia. I learn how to do a course pack. I learn how to set the syllabus up, you know, the whole thing, go in introduced the first night in the whole course, and she's at home laying on her couch with a back injury. Um, and, and we continue that way for six, six, seven, eight weeks. And then she enters the picture and we co-teach. Wow. And it was a really unique experience, I think, at that level. And it was graduate students who were going back to their classrooms, coming back with reports. I was able to go to my classroom, come back with the stories. It was a real full and enriching experience. But it led me into having grad courses of my own from there out, night classes and a Saturday class. So, and I loved it. I mean, it was all about teacher pedagogy and student pedagogy and metacognition and getting teachers to really be the best teachers they could be so their kids could be the best learners they could be. And I realized that is where my heart is. That that really is where um, I thrive. It's interesting because the job of being a principal, you think that's what they do, what mm-hmm. you just described. But most principals that I know, there's so much minutia and so many other things going on. They don't actually get to do that, you know, that delicious part you just described. Say that again. You said teaching them to be the best they could be. 
basically, yeah, teaching them to be the best teachers they could be so they could create the best learners those kids could be. So amazing. And uh, it, those no's are, are, are kind of mind-blowing. What's funny is, is if you go back in through my podcast, a few, to one with my sister, she has a very similar story about becoming a principal. I don't know if you heard that one. Uh, trying to become a principal and all the no's and this whole year of no's and how she was striving so hard and wound up with something else. Yeah. Something else that was beautiful. Interesting. God. Better suited for me. It's kind of like God knew I was better suited to do this work than other. And this kind of has like a, it's not like a club sandwich, I guess it has another player. <laughs> And not because shortly after, um, while that was happening, by knowing Georgia, she opened up doors for me that I don't think I would have found otherwise. So I was able to then participate on two writing teams for two textbooks. And um, the one meant quite a long drive, Michigan State, twice a week um, to work with that writing team. And a professor there was putting together a textbook. And so um, I co-wrote a couple of the chapters in that book. And it, it's kind of nice to know your name. I mean, I've never, I don't even have a copy of the book, but um, it's, it's kind of nice to know that somewhere out there at Michigan State, some grad students are reading chapters or were at that point um, about my theories and the way I put together the research and how to reach kids. Wow. Um, and then I worked with Georgia on a couple different writing projects as part of a team so those were really interesting, um, fulfilling. And every time you do something like that, you learn another little piece to take with you to the next yes. learning situation, whatever it is. Wow. So um, it was all good things. It was just able to be, um, to impact students on a larger scale and just be really grateful for all that experience. Wow. So, yeah. It is so interesting how in both stories, the, go- the Flaming Goose story. <laughs> The universe conspires, you know, God conspires to put us in the place where we are safest (laughs) from flaming geese and where we can shine the most. Right. And all the fulfillment that you got to derive from. And I, I, in my mind, my friends who are principals, I can see, you know, this sort of, you're a little more landlocked, you know, you're landlocked and where you were, you're kind of, you could do a little of this, you could do a little of that. And you probably had a little bit more um, freedom to floor and actually write textbooks too. I mean, you know, really. So that's, that's fantastic. It's kind of fun. Yeah. You think back and go, wow, I guess I did that too. So, um, and then right after that, you know, the textbooks have gone to press. Um, I think it must've been about this time. I was kind of like, I think I kept one of the grad classes. I mean, I gave up the Saturday stuff, but um, NASA put out an all call for teachers NASA to be the first teacher in space. Oh boy. And now I have time because the textbooks were done and it was like, Whoa, give me the application. And so I, it, it, it was like a graduate thesis, this application, but I had it done in a Saturday, Sunday, put it in the mail Monday morning. And five months later, I got the letter that said, thank you for applying, but no, it's not you. Thank God. So, so, um, <laughs> teacher in space. And, and so when that happened, it, um, every teacher in the nation though got behind Krista McAuliffe. If you remember, I don't know how old you were then, but we, I mean, we hung on every word that NASA put out about this teacher training alongside the astronauts, you know, that's going to be me. Um, Figuring out which experiments to take into space, talking to our students about what would you like to see happen in space to compare gravity versus no gravity. Um, And all, we were just so excited. So um, I can remember standing on a January afternoon 
uh, with the TV out at the front of the classroom. I'm in the middle of its fourth period toward, you know, like the last 20 minutes of fourth period. And I have seventh graders at that moment. And um, the space launch is happening and we all know what happened. And so the first thing, I mean, I'm kind of by myself with the sea of kids, 12 year olds. And like, I got a gut punch, just a total gut punch. And it was like, immediately my brain said, sometimes no is the right answer. Yes. Um, it was, but you know, I didn't say that out loud. And I thought, okay, gather your wits, go to the front of the room, turn off the television and the kids, of course, in every school around the country, was that supposed to happen? You know, blah, blah, blah. And they want to know what's happened. I said, you know, we don't have any information yet, but it's about time. We're about ready to change classes <laughs> and we have five minutes. So why don't we talk, you know, what do you, you know, what experiment did you want to see, you know, Mrs. McAuliffe do? And we just started talking. And to get you know, divert and distract, because I was not going to be the one to stand up there among, you know, I said, by the time you get home, your parents are going to have the current information mm-hmm. from the news. So when you get home, you can talk to your parents mm-hmm. and we'll talk about it tomorrow because we just needed time to group. The process, yeah. Mm-hmm. The process. But then I realized that the rest of that year, those five sections of kids, I had two eighth grade, no, three eighth grade sections and two seventh grade sections. And it was just like, Every day they reminded me um, I was here to help them be the best learners they could be. There was a reason I was not supposed to be on that space shuttle, you know, um, for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. So there we go again. The beauty of no. Wow. And and just disappointment. Sure. All those things we talked about earlier, being disappointed, being maybe even a little angry, being like, geez, when is it going to be my turn? But there there was a reason. I mean, wow. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. It's so true, isn't it? And and we don't get to see it until hindsight a lot of the time because we're stuck in disappointment. We're stuck maybe in striving. And then we get to see it in hindsight. Oh wow. Yeah. Oh wow. And I think it's important though then to take that, take that moment, you know, take a deep breath, you know, say flaming goose and slow down. (laughs) And and then think about the past and hope that. Of course, it's as you get older, because you have to acquire the experiences to say that really wasn't so bad. Look at all the good things that happened after it. So the next time I hear a no, it's not the end of the world. Right. And how to impart that to a 16 year old. I don't know yet. (laughs) Year old who can't believe she's not going on her study abroad this year because of COVID. You know, no, not now. (laughs) COVID is a big fat no for all of us. right? (laughs) Isn't it, though? So learning to learning to to cope with that. Um, yeah, I think all through my life. And then there was like, probably the biggest, the biggest beauty of no was when I was 38. Mm. Um, I was 37 when my husband, David, was diagnosed with a glioblastoma brain tumor. And um, at best, at that time, we would have had a, a year. I mean, we were told, I was told, uh, you have about a year together. And he never wanted to talk about his memorial. Because people don't live to die, people live to live. Mm. And in his mind, he was going to beat this cancer. There's no doubt about it. So I lived that life. I lived the life of we're beating this cancer. I also had to live the life of reality, knowing that a glioblastoma has a very um, finite schedule that it lives on, and it is bigger than we are. Um, With today's medicines, um, they're going about a year longer, like John McCain did or Ted Kennedy. 
but at that time it was 11 to 12 months from diagnosis to death. So I'm living that. And all I really wanted was his input on a memorial service because I was dealing with his parents and siblings, very strong-willed people. I was dealing with two ex-wives and his four children. Um, And I just knew that if I could say, here's what David wanted and have the priest with me saying, I sat and talked with Dave, this is what he wanted. A lot of the drama would go away. And I just Mm. didn't want the drama when it was time to celebrate his life. Sure. So for my 38th birthday present, he agreed to let Father George come over and we put together his memorial service. And um, five weeks later, he was gone. Oh, gosh. So um, that was the big no. Um, I think, you know, God told me, no, no, you can't keep this man. Mm. And um, he was my faithful bike riding partner, my tent camper. Um, He loved sports. He was the high school principal that could control a class A high school and not really be the disciplinarian. He he had a way about him of (laughs) behavior management, not discipline. Uh, Kids loved him. And um, and God said, no, but you can't keep him any longer. Mm. I, I have some things for him to do here. And I have plans for you. And I, I think back and go, gosh, if in that moment I could really have accepted that because you fight it, you're being told no, you are angry, you're disappointed, you're distressed, you know, it's it's all of those no feelings that no brings out. And trying to, and I think that's what got me thinking, when does this negative thing about no start? Why is it such a negative emotion reaping word? It's so little, but there you go. Um, And yet I had to sit back and say, you know, I'm grateful we had 10 years together. Um, He shared four children with me that all taught me something, brought joy into our life. Uh, We were part of three state championship basketball years with his oldest son. It was exciting. Yeah. um, I could sit in the stands with that young man's mom and enjoy the game with her. I mean, it was very we were a big family. Um, and that in that whole thing, uh, I was thinking about everything else that fed into those 11 months. And these are almost like tiny little gratitude tea sandwiches that make up <laughs> little tea sandwiches. And it was like the, the hospice volunteers that came to our home, the, um, the home nurse who came regularly, but even even after I married Brian, she and I are still friends and we walked regularly during the week. Um, and I met her because God said, no, you can't keep him. Um, it's, it's kind of a, just my dad, my dad drove over, over an hour to our house, ready to put a ramp in that night. I mean, he'd come home from work, knew what was happening, got in the car with materials, drove an hour, put a ramp to the front door. Cause we needed a wheelchair in and out right then. My sister would take her toddlers and go pick blueberries, you know, all these people feeding, um, feeding into this whole experience that I, I don't think those relationships would have been what they were had he not been dying, which is very, you know, there's a juxtaposition there that's still hard to articulate. But um, the blueberries became a, um, a kind of a family joke because he, as, as the brain tumor grew and there was, there could be no more surgeries, and there could be no more radiation and all of that treatment was over. He would fall asleep more frequently during the day. But every time he'd wake up, I'd go in and, you know, hi, what do you need? How are you doing? What's what's happening? 
And he'd say, well, good morning. And I said, I use what's for breakfast. I said, well, what sounds good? He goes, I think blueberry pancakes. So I don't make blueberry pancakes. And he'd fall asleep and wake up two hours later. I'd go in and he'd say, well, good morning. I said, good morning. <laughs> and he says, what's for breakfast? I said, well, what sounds good? <laughs> I did that seven times a day sometimes. Wow. Blueberry pancakes. So I learned how to make a batch and then wrap them in a damp paper towel and microwave one. Yeah. So about seven times a day, we'd have a blueberry pancake for weeks. <laughs> and, and so those West Michigan blueberries, you know, my niece still remembers picking blueberries and bringing them to Uncle Dave. Um, she was probably three. Oh my God. She remembers that. Yeah. It, it made such a, an impression. He had colleagues that would come and visit. There was always two or three teachers after school that would stop for about an hour. They just developed a schedule and made sure they showed up on the porch and he'd go out and visit and he thought he was having his math department meetings with them. You know, he says, well, it's nice of you to come over so we can get this done. He says, I'll be back at school next week. And, and, you know, it's not like coaching, just say, yes, that's fine. That's good. But it's good to, you know, you know, cause you, you learn to live a life that's their reality and you live a life that is reality. It was interesting. Um, just so much to be grateful for. The retired teachers formed like a six-week schedule to pick him up, take him to radiation, fix his lunch, stick around until he went and take his nap, and then they'd leave. And then I would um, get home about an hour later. He didn't want me staying home from work. I tried. I mean, I just took the year off. And he goes, well, no, it's like you're standing around here waiting for me to die. And that was the moment. I thought, oh, that's true. None of my students live to die. They live to get their classwork done so they can go back to school. Whether or not that's reality doesn't matter. That's how they live. And so I did go back to school, but, you know, so grateful for the leniency of that administration and those team members because they held me up. Wow. And when I got home, I held everybody else up kind of thing. Um, yeah. You know, so um, it it worked. I think I'm also really grateful um, in that no is he knew I wanted this job as the homebound teacher. I had done many different special education classrooms, um, resource centers and teacher consultant work, seventh and eighth grade classroom work. And then this, this opening was happening. Somebody was retiring. And uh, one of his colleagues even came over. She said, I'll come at noon so you can leave. I said, well, the interview is not till 2.30. Don't worry about it. And she said, no, go to sit at my house. Just be quiet before you go to the interview. I'll be here. And, and people were always doing that. So I went to Joan's house and sat there and just got ready for this interview. And the specialist supervisor, before he left the um, interview room, he said, before you leave the building, stop by my office. And I did. I had a few stops to make at the board office. And then I went down to his place and he said, um, you have the job if you want it. Oh, you never hear the same day. No. He said, no, we interviewed everybody else first. <laughs> And going into this, uh, I think we pretty much knew because up to that point, I'd had a 20 year interview in that school district. And, and he basically uh-huh. said that you've got a 20 year interview behind you. Uh-huh. So the fact that we, you know, we can trust you with this position, it's, it's a no brainer. Uh-huh. So I was able to go home and tell him, because that's what he did. You get the job. Did you get that job? Uh-huh. And I did. And he said, that's good. That's good. It'll all be OK now. And then he went to sleep and we had a blueberry pancake two hours later. <laughs> um, he, um, he was cognizant enough to that point, And that was two weeks before he actually died. So, um, yeah, I, I, the gratefulness in all of that, that summer from May 11th to August 14th, 
1991. Um, there was not a drop of rain during the day in Plymouth, Michigan. Uh, you know, you know these things because you had laundry on the line every day. You had people either on the deck or on the porch every day, either visiting with each other or waiting for him to be able to join them when he could. Um, if we had a small bungalow, if I hadn't had the outside space, it just wouldn't have been possible. But it re- enriched his life. It enriched my life to have all of that going on wow. uh, at the same time. So, but then August 15th, when I woke up, sheets of rain were just pouring out of the sky. You know, the heavens were weeping, but it was still kind of a grateful grateful feeling, you know, rain and alone and a quiet house. And oh my gosh, did that all that just happen? But, um, but still grateful at this point. Wow. Um, I'm saying wow a lot throughout this whole podcast because wow. (laughs) So much, you know, so. Wow. It's been a long lot of challenges for you and things that might make some folks bitter. And instead, you know, you're, you're just a positive, um, grateful person through it all. It's amazing to see the sunshine and to see the sunshine, even in the rain. That's something. Mm-hmm. That's something. Well, I mean, you think, so what's, what's the beauty in knowing that she just described, you know, the whole episode of her husband dying, you know, she's 38 and her husband's gone. So where's the beauty in that? No. And um, later that first week, the phone call came from the hospice from the woman who had started a grief support group for the atypical widowed person under 50 and lost a spouse. Very, a very controlled group of people who were needing to do some special kind of grieving. And so I met her, Kathy, and started participating. I knew every Tuesday night I could go to either that church or we had home meetings. So we, we alternated. And every Tuesday night I was with other widows, 20 year old, 30, 40 year olds. who wow. lost us. And um, after two years of that, I actually moved into volunteering with the group. And somewhere along the line, um, God found a young father who he said, no, you can't keep your wife. I have plans for her and I have plans for you. Mm-hmm. And that's when, um, my husband with six kids lost his wife in 1994 mm-hmm. and um, he started coming to this young widow's support group with the youngest child. We also had art therapy that coincided with it so that children had their art therapists to go see in their groups and talk about losing their parent. And the parents had a place to go to talk about losing their spouse. Wow. And so, um, if it weren't for that group, I probably would never have crossed paths with Brian. Mm. Um, and eventually at some point, you know, you come out of your fog and you realize there is going to be life at the end of the tunnel. And um, so I kind of feel that gratitude sandwich has two top layers. <laughs> it keeps going. We have two top layers because I married that man, his six kids, his four pets, you know, the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. And um, and there we go. So. God knew. I mean, God knew that I would end up with these six kids. I would have these 12 grandchildren. I I would end up with grandchildren, even though I never birthed my own babies, basically. And that three of these 12 were going to have something happen educationally for them, neurologically, whatever, 
that my experience could could benefit. And so, um, you know, we have one that has vision problems and the path I walked with his mother and another one that has some learning issues and the path I walked with her mother and uh, someone else has some behavioral things happening. It's early, it's young, but there's a path I'm walking with his mother. So, um, it, you know, it's like God knew this was the place I needed to be. Wow. Um, you know, it's extraordinary. This is what keeps coming to mind as you're telling these little parts, all these things falling into place like puzzle pieces is that you were prepared for such a time as this. You know, there's no mistakes. Nothing is wasted. So all the experiences culminate and come together to make this yeah. amazing story you've shared. It, it, it is crazy. And so, no, I didn't get to keep the first husband that I thought I was going to have this long and lively marriage with. I have this husband instead, but another, um, something else happened. I used to sit around and muse and the teacher's lounge is a good place to do that. And I remember saying one time, you know, if I had enough money, <laughs> I would rent an apartment in every major city in the country and live there for a full year. That was kind of like my goal in life. And it was like, that's eh, such a pipe dream. It's never going to happen for me. And sure enough, I marry Brian and um, we end up living in four different states uh, for different reasons. Um, we also end up doing the motorhome life. And I guess when you're widowed young, you really learn flexibility. You keep your knees flexed and you learn to say, why put it off? Do it now. And so we went ahead and started the motorhome journey. And uh, he would work. Um, part, he was working part time at that point. And so he, as long as he could get to an airport and get to whichever plant he had to be at, it was fine. And I just lived alone in the big brown bus. So I, um, I was on tennis teams and I got to learn this and I got to take tap dancing in Phoenix, Arizona and, you know, all sorts of different experiences around the country. And so because of the motorhomes, we've lived in, you know, Breckenridge for a couple of weeks and I've lived in Palm Springs and I've lived in um, Mesa, Phoenix, let's see, Asheville, Sarasota, you know, Hilton Head, just like, oh, so the Hilton Head, whatever it is, Bay. Uh, is like my front yard for this month. Oh my and you just dive into life in that part of the country. So um, I, I put it out there in the universe. It didn't happen the way I thought it was going to happen. It might have even happened in a better way. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Seriously, because you're right. That's a, yeah. Uh, Martha Beck calls those wildly impossible goals. Wings. <laughs> and so we, you know, we have these things. I want to live in a city, you know, different city for a year. So like, you have all these experiences and people look at you like, uh -huh. yeah, right. Yeah. You keep dreaming, babe. And then there's these things though, that we speak, I think out loud, like that one that come to fruition. And it's as if your soul was speaking in that moment rather than you just be having an actual pipe dream, right? And so with some of my clients, it's really helpful. We come to a place in their transitioning and their, in their growing. And then they're just, just shifting from, you know, stuck mindsets to open-mindedness and possibility. Sure. So these places where we can really listen deeply into our souls and, and start to form some of these wildly impossible goals. You, this is, wow, this is a podcast full <laughs> so the other thing I was just thinking of, you know, so I put it out there there's no way in the world I, I would have thought that was, like you said, it's impossible goal. I'm going to rent an apartment 
or a house in all these different major cities across the country and experience what life is like in the Northeast, the Southwest, the South, you know, the Northwest. And um, instead, what has happened, I realized I never could have planned for it to happen. Mm-hmm. You just have to be open to doing it. And so the openness there, the, the another no, the beauty of no, as hard as it was for me is no, you aren't going to retire to Charlevoix, Michigan, the way you always thought you were for 30 or 40 years. Yeah, no, you aren't going to keep that piece of property you bought years and years ago. You're going to sell it and use the money to landscape one of these homes that you've had in five states. Um, and no, you're not going to stay in Michigan, which is really, if any Michiganders are listening, you're going to know how hard that is. Um, it is hard. I mean, that's probably the biggest disappointment. So no, I'm a Hoosier. Uh, I live landlocked, you know, in Indianapolis. And, and uh, yet, life is still so very good. Yeah. Um, here I am. The biggest no is, you know, the end of my, end of my life. Uh, the end of the road is, so this is probably it. This is where two daughters live. Um, and, and you know what? To think that your kids want you to be right nearby. Hashtag winning. We talk to so many people and, and it's kind of like, wow, but our kids like us to be here. Yeah. You know? Florida, Florida didn't work for them any better than it worked for us, you know, so here we are. Wow. Wow. That is like a submarine gratitude sandwich. It's like the <laughs> big one you take to the football games, right? With a big, <laughs> wow. Thank you so much, Karen, for sharing so much of your heart and so many stories. The that, beauty of no. Yeah, the beauty of no and where we no have gratitude. Just pops up, and you're like, "Wait, I'm thankful because there was a no. I'm thankful because there was a flaming goose." Yeah. <laughs> that remind me, you know, there's so many things, so many nuggets inside of this whole right. um, story. Thank you so much. Thank you. I am fun. thankful to call you friend, and I'm thankful for this Thank time with you. I, me too, and I've enjoyed the podcasts. Yay. I enjoyed listening to them. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me today, listening to Karen's story. It was full, full of so much goodness. If you're having trouble finding the goodness in your life, you're having trouble reframing your thoughts and having trouble continuing to believe the ones that aren't moving you in the direction of your dreams, go to my website and sign up for a free 30-minute coaching call with me. I will teach you three easy tools to help you to reframe your thoughts and start moving you in the direction you want to go. Thanks again. I am grateful for you.